This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today is the co-founder and co-artistic director of The Barrel Group, a New York-based theater company and actor studio. He is an accomplished director, composer, and songwriter, best known for his award-winning collaborations with comedian Mike Birbiglia and playwright Martin Moran. He has directed dozens of plays on and off Broadway, and he is the author of the book, An Actor's Companion, Tools for the Working Actor. Places, please, for my creative conversation with renowned acting coach and teacher, Seth Barish. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. Happy to be here. Do you feel renowned? On certain days. <laughs> it's such a funny word, isn't it? <laughs> to be renowned. N- known again would be the, is that what that comes I think from? that's what it might be short for. Yeah. Who knew me in the first place? But I could have used the word notorious. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad you avoided that. Well, it is funny these days how close fame and infamy are. There are more super famous people that are infamous, I think, than were famous at a period of time. I'm sure that's very true. Although it's interesting that some of the worst folks seem to last the longest, Genghis Khan. Yeah, that's my point. If you refer to somebody as Attila Hun, you know who they are. You know what their behavior is. This is not the way I intended to set the stage, um, but maybe let's talk about that in the context of acting because actors often have to play bad guys. Yeah. And so finding the humanity or finding the reality of who you are within that, that's the people when I watch a movie or a play, I go, that guy is so evil and he's likable. Yeah, yeah. So tell me a little bit about how, when you're directing or or suggesting that when you're playing either against type or you're playing something that's, there's a much deeper thing that... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or acting too, which I also do a lot of that. So here's the way I look at it. You know, there's a zillion ways to approach acting. I don't believe that there's any one way or the only way. That said, what makes sense to me is the notion that as actors, we just do stuff. And what we got to do is figure out what to do, and then we do it. And I think where we get tripped up is we start thinking about what a character is like, or what their qualities are like, or what their demeanor is like, or any of this stuff, instead of just figuring out what to do and doing it. And so if you if a script has you murder somebody, in real life, we would know like that's uh, beyond bad. When acting, it's like, well, number one, I'm not really murdering somebody. And number two, it's like, it's just something to do. So I'll, you know, here, it's time to do it. Murder is just something to do, as Seth said. (laughs) That's right. I think I just got canceled. (laughs) No, no, no. No, but I understand. So you're saying now let's think about how we would murder a person or what tasks we would do or what? What to do. So the script says, take the knife and shove it in the guy's head. And it's like, okay, if I were to stop and think about it, I think that's an awful thing to do. I, Seth beyond as a player it's like i'm just doing it will i have feelings about it when i do it probably will those feelings include a lot of awful kinds of things sure but i'm not worried about it because i'm pretending number one and i'm i'm just doing it i'm doing the state i should say the stage combat version of sure and that way you don't get trapped into thinking about all this other stuff and i guess for me the underlying theory at play here is that just like life, we're doing stuff. We're not spending all this time going like, how am I coming off? I mean, maybe some of us do, but it it seems to be a pitfall in life as well. You know, just to rather be aware of what are the consequences and in terms of life and living philosophy, for me, the golden rule is so clear and good. And, and hap- happily, so many of the things that characters that I'm playing or others are playing in these pretend situations are do not line up with what people do, hopefully, in real life at all. But I really think we get into trouble thinking like, you know, this dude's evil. Just do it. You're, it's not your job to determine whether it's <laughs> Well, you have played many character roles in movies and television. I'm always delighted when it when you pop up. I didn't know you were in something. And I'm like, oh, oh. And, yeah. and sometimes those characters are of a guy that has to deliver bad news. You're a doctor. You're a lawyer you seem to be a guy that they can't cut out of the film because they you have some piece of information well those are just the films you saw me in of course i've been cut out so many times i had one year <laughs> i had one year where i literally seven times in a row seven jobs in a row i was either cut out or canceled before they even shot it and the last one my agent called very excited because 
He said, there is no way they can cut you out. This is the pivotal plot point of the entire film. Right. All right. And then right. a day, the day before he goes, you won't believe this. I went, oh, go ahead. He goes, they, they cut it. Like, oh my God. So even the exposition that requires <laughs> the plot of the show, if that's attached to you, you're not safe. It wasn't even exposition. It was literally the, the main event of the thing. And it was me. And I was like, uh, I guess they're changing the main event. <laughs> Now speak to that as a as a person who founded and runs an acting studio that actors, writers, and directors are yeah. all developing their material because even the performances, as you say, they can be cut out. So it's hard for you not to take it personally momentarily. It certainly can be, although I'm 63 years old and I've been doing this for a long time. And after you've been through that process so many times, a uh, number of things happen. For one, you don't take it personally because you understand it's just sort of the nature of the beast. And second, I've been around long enough to be on all sides of it now. And so I've been you know, as either director or writer or producer or some combination thereof. And I understand that these choices usually are made for some reason. It's not just somebody trying in any way to hurt somebody or anything like mm -hmm. that. And so I've been involved in so many processes where perhaps a scene got cut and and there are actors attached and it's like, oh gosh. And you, and it feels terrible. You don't want to disappoint the person, but at the yeah. same time, you do feel really worse as a producer and director, I think, because you audition so many people and you see good people. Yeah. And you think I can only pick one on this part. I oh, can only yeah. pick one person. Oh yeah. yeah. I, I always tell folks, you know, like what I found on the other side is that for any given role, there's usually four or five brilliant performances that come in you're like wow they, they're all brilliant you know it, it, it's it it doesn't mean you failed because you didn't get it it just there were a lot of chips that didn't fall into place you know although easier said than felt well true but also sometimes they forget that there are other parts to that the complication is i like this other person to be the spouse or i need this person to play the child of that person and i like the resemblance of these characters any number of little machinations that when you're shifting around the casting headshots you go, ah, it's a shame. This yeah. person's fantastic and they don't fit the ensemble. That's right. Or I like them because they don't fit this type. I need them to not be what was written on the page. I had a wacky story regarding that. I, I got an audition for something. The description of the character was tall Irish cop. <laughs> <laughs> and for the listening audience, I look nothing like a tall Irish cop. I'm I'm five eight. I look as, you know, on the, on the ethnic side uh, of things. Would it be fair to say short Jewish accountant? Uh, <laughs> no, go, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, along those lines, I, accountant is a little limiting. I'm just saying in a different movie. <laughs> <laughs> so I called my agent and I said, this is definitely a mistake. He goes, I don't think so. And I went, no, it, it really, I mean, tall Irish. <laughs> and, and so I said, can you call them and just verify that. So he calls me and goes, no, 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 no. They want to see you. So I'm like, all right, really? And I, okay. And like the character's name is O'Brien and stuff like this. I mean, this is just, <laughs> right. this is crazy. So I go in and I'm sitting in the waiting room and there's 10 very tall Irish looking gentlemen and me. And I'm like, what the hell? And then uh, I, I go in an audition and the whole time I'm feeling like, this isn't, you know, this is ridiculous. And as it turns out, it ended up being between me and the other, this one other guy who was a, uh, you know, as for mentioned, whose far, actual name was O'Brien. Yeah. Well, something. Right. <laughs> and, and I s shared that story with a director friend of mine. And he said, I totally get that because those breakdowns and, and even names and stuff are sometimes arbitrary or written by a casting director, or anything like that. And a lot of times a director wants to go against cliche. So mm -hmm. they have a fireman. It's like, you know, not all firemen are named O'Brien and not all firemen are Irish and stuff like that. So they may have been interested in you for that reason alone if not others and i was like oh that's really interesting and i'll keep them yeah i think it's a good lesson to all actors oh yeah because no i think that those descriptions they cause somebody to think that they really want to be what the what the director wants or the writer wants yeah and so if it says lumberjack type and wears a flannel shirt to come in looking exactly like that is not necessarily like the win has to be you as an actor not that you can wear the costume yeah. i'm not saying it helps or hurts Either way, but I think the thing is, the essence, what I've always wanted, is I want somebody to bring themselves to the party. Sure. I wish that everybody walked through the door 
could get the part. I want the person to walk in and be the person because it it ends the day nicely. You go, good, we found them. But when they come in and they are pretending to be something else, sometimes that affectation, and, and I'm talking to the right guy because I know your theater company deals a lot with naturalistic yeah. and just human behavior. So uh, how do you strip performers of the idea of being so performative about a character? The way I look at it is we're alive, living all the time, and we're good at that. We're all of us are masters, not because of our own will or anything we're consciously even doing. It's just that we, we're practicing constantly. And I think what happens is actors get ideas of what they think they're supposed to do or what they think they're responsible for, and they start behaving in ways that are other than lifelike because of that. Oh, that's interesting. And so to steer an actor or another actor or yourself towards it, a lot of times I encourage people to think subtractively versus additively. In other words, instead of going, oh, to do this role, I got to do this and this and this and this and this. It's more like, am I doing anything strange or additional that might be turning my real life self into something that is less lifelike and a lot of times those things are really easy to identify and once you identify them you can let them go plus whether you're identifying them or not there's actually some techniques that people can can utilize that help that stuff fall away it sort of short circuits their planning so that things kind of happen by themselves encouraging spontaneity yeah or being uh, open to responding or feeling in the moment as opposed to doing it the same way and absolutely i'm a huge believer and i just have a great interest in things not being in any way set i think that spontaneity is inherent in life and and ideally can be inherent in performance too i saw this great documentary on american masters i think it's called and there was an episode about yitzhak perlman the violinist he was the subject. And in it, there was a scene with him cooking a dinner at his home with Alan Alda, who I guess is a, a friend of his. And my recollection is people will hear this and go to the documentary going, Seth, what are you talking about? None of that exists. And I go, no, no, I really remember this. My, my recollection is that Alan Alda asked Yitzhak Perlman if his playing is different every time or not, something like that. And Yitzhak Roman said, absolutely, every time I play a note, it is completely new, every, every time. And then he, he turned the tables and said, how about for you with acting? And Alan Alda said something to the effect of absolutely. He goes, I'm not interested in watching an actor give a report. And what I immediately thought of in that is, yeah, that's right. The actor reads a script and speaks with people and comes up with information and does research. And then they're like, these are the, let me show you the results of my report. As opposed to when you're just clear on what you're doing and you're just there doing it, it's literally happening in the moment. It is, there's not, it's not like this romantic idea of happening in the moment. It's literal. It's like, it's like, I don't know how this is coming out. I don't know what I'm feeling. I don't know any of these things. And then the audience gets to witness the spontaneous discovery, you know, and, and yeah. all that. I saw Alan Alda in a play once in Los Angeles, and it was a Neil Simon piece. And I re just remember he came down and sat at the edge of the stage yeah. with his feet off the front, talked to us at, in the audience. Yeah. And I thought, I, I think Alan Alda's talking to me. Yeah. Like, I don't, I didn't get the character sense. I also didn't get the sense there was a play. Yeah. And in, in, in such a powerful way yeah. that it sort of stayed with me. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, this guy really is being himself. Oh, yeah. He's delivering content that's required for me to understand the story. Yeah. But I really, really felt like I was at home with this actor. Yeah. Let me mention the name of your acting studio and classes mm -hmm. and workshop. It's called The Barrow Group. Yeah. And the Barrow Group really focuses and fosters that idea of compelling human behavior and keeping things as natural and open to the actors sort of living the roles within the part. Yeah. Uh, and maybe I'm just sort of paraphrasing. No, no, no. It's exactly as you're describing the description of the Alan Alda performance. I think that probably was Jake's Women, I'm guessing. It um, was. Indeed, it was. Yeah. That is completely in line. I find in line with what bear groups built around i am thrilled by that kind of stuff i find myself so engaged when i lose the sight that i'm watching something artificial and it just feels like i'm in the room with a real person and what i find is that the whole imaginary world all of a sudden 
becomes much more realistic and engaging. And for me, there's a history to this, which is where I saw a play when I was in college. It was a student production. I went to UCLA. I was a theater major. And there was a portion of this cast, like about, I don't know, 30% of them that were performing in this way where I I couldn't tell it was scripted. I was like, what the hell's going on? And I found that my emotional response to the story was so much bigger than any emotional response I'd ever had to any other performance. And I was like, whatever the hell they're doing is, I, I, I have to know more about that. And I sought those people out, worked to, together with them for years. We actually started a theater company in LA for a while. And then I moved out to New York and I remained fascinated with it. And the Bear Group was started based on just like, how the hell do we do that? And we found a group of people that were like-minded and we just spent all sorts of time continually developing this kind of approach and then applying it to material and, and sharing it with the others. And that includes the, all the training stuff. Sure, which is a, quite a bit about making the technique invisible and in some ways arming them with confidence to be able to set aside that performative idea of presenting as opposed to being the person. You know, it's funny, like in, in the stand-up world, you know, with a lot of stand-ups, you see this all the time. You're just an incredible stand-up. And, and when you watch you, it just feels like you're talking. Right. And Mike Birbiglia always talks about the sleight of hand of, of stand-up, that it's like, it feels like I'm just talking. And in a certain sense, I am, but it's also really crafted. <laughs> once you have a point of view, once you know who you are, there's times that you have to deliver something you've delivered a thousand times. And yeah. it has to sound like it happened this morning. Yeah. And there are other times you literally haven't, You've thought of an idea walking around down the street, and you go, oh, I'm going to try that tonight, right? And somehow they have to share a moment. You have this great technique as a director of easing people into the performance yeah. from when they arrive and they sit down and they're rustling their program. And when the performer takes the stage, yeah. you think, oh, Mike Berbigley is just talking to me about his parking spot. Yeah. And then the next thing you know, 20 minutes into the show, you go, wait a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the show. Yeah. And you do it with a number of things. I've noticed that you do it with music, you do it with lighting, you do it with everything. And it's not something that we're aware of, Yeah, but it's a powerful way to sort of load up the thrill ride. I'm not asking you to give away your Jedi mind tricks, but I do <laughs> feel... Like it, no, but it's really, uh, I think any actor or director or one person show could really benefit from understanding that invitation that you envelope them into the story before they know it. What came to mind as you're describing this is my experience. I I was a, I'm a pianist and I, when I was in college, I had two piano gigs and related to the comedy world. One was I, I had a job playing at the comedy store on sunset on improv night which was thrilling but another gig i had was as a student at the ucla comedy club which was a a group of people they got themselves together and they would they figured out a thing where they would do an evening of comedy with the student comics everybody doing five minutes and then they'd have a headliner and back then there really wasn't this natural career spot for great stand-ups you 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 were just you know they would work in the clubs but you could get major headliners to you know come to the college and 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 do a thing really interesting thing happened to me in based on something i observed what i noticed is the student comics would do the same exact set every time sometimes they might try a new joke or something their delivery was very very similar if not just as identical as they could get it almost and they would just come in and start right away. And once I was playing and George Wallace, he was the headliner and I was playing. And then, you know, the typical thing when you're playing is you, you're playing when people come in and then host comes in, takes over. And then when they'd introduce a comic, I'd play them on. And when they were finished, I'd play them off. And so I was doing that with all the student comics. And then ladies and gentlemen, George Wallace, and he comes in and I'm playing it. And he looks at me and he goes, what are you playing? And I said, I'm playing the piano. And he goes, he goes, no, I know you're playing the piano, but like, what's the piece? And I was like, oh, uh, I, you know, and I don't know what it was. It might have been Misty or something. And he goes, he goes, oh, I love that piece. He goes, and, 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 and he's, he just, you know, so how's everybody doing everything? And I was like, wait a minute. There's no way that that was written. 
there's no way that this is like completely crafted as a thing. And I went, he's taking time to hang with the room and let the room hang with him. And immediately a human bond formed and, and everybody was in. I hope for some reason he hears this and knows that he inspired me. I noticed it immediately and I started to extrapolate and I went, yeah, right. You got to form a relationship. I, sometimes I describe it as the handshake with the audience. Uh, well, one of the things I will say that I found to be something worth risking is always to look at the arrival moment, uh, let's say in a corporate event or a private party or a situation where you're dressing a group. You have to do something that tells them this is not my routine that I've been doing all my life. Yeah. You have to make this night about them and about that space. Yeah. And and to me, if there's a secret to it, it's the approach. Mm -hmm. When I check in at that hotel, I look at it as I'm one of them checking in. Or if mm -hmm. I see that wacky flower arrangement in the lobby, mm -hmm. or if I pass a poster that has a, a saying on it, mm -hmm. or if I enter the room, or if I listen to the speaker just before me, introduce me, if there's a moment or a mannerism... It's you're you're in a state of anticipation, waiting for lightning to strike. Yeah, and then you have to take the risk to comment on that, as George did with the music. And this is something that you see, Jonathan Winters and people who were really amazing improvers yeah. will will always take that every time. Yeah. But if you take in the first few minutes of your performance to talk about the rainfall or the slow train or the anything that that they just experienced, mm -hmm. then they believe the entire performance is that way. Mm -hmm. They literally think, oh, well, yeah, of course I'm late because of the rain. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but if you don't acknowledge it, if you, if you walk out there and say whatever that you've said a thousand times, then it takes them a while to board the train. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I saw it in your most recent piece with Mike Berbiglia, the old man in the pool. Yeah. I noticed the lighting was that way throughout the show, the yeah. transitional lighting. Yeah. He's got a backdrop of a deep end of a pool. It's just really an amazing vibe. And when he's doing a more serious thing, the lighting of the pool changes to take to create a tone that supports the material. Yeah. And when something brightens up, the pool brightens up. And I don't know the specific transitions, but uh, but it takes you a while to figure out because like it doesn't happen like a quick blackout it is very much like watching a time lapse yeah. of something where you, if you sped it up, you go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I now I see what's happening. But that that's exactly right. I, I I tend to lean towards what I would describe as invisible directing. I do like using elements of design. I I, I really enjoy all the things that design does: incredible sound, incredible lights, incredible images, and all of these things. What bumps me sometimes is when my attention goes to the design choice and I'm somehow less engaged with the actual story or performer or any of those things. And so the ideal scenario to me is it's happening and you're not consciously aware like, oh, cool lighting cue, but you're just in it. And then you might uh, on the end of it or after the fact go like, oh my gosh, we're in this totally new thing. That's really, that's nice. It's funny. It, that's something that Mike Birbiglia always, he, he calls me, you know, to my face. He goes, he goes, you're the invisible director. He used to say, it's, it's hard to get you a gig, Seth, because nobody knows what you do. And I was right. like, uh, okay. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about it because we've mentioned Mike Birbiglia and I mentioned Martin Moran earlier, yeah. but I would love you to regale the audience to how Mike came to you. Yeah. You had, Directed Martin Moran. I believe it was the tricky part. Yeah. It's an amazing play that was based on Martin's memoir. Mm -hmm. I loved that when you told me that Mike Birbiglia saw this play, mm -hmm. and I'd love you to tell the story about how he approached you to work with him. Yeah. What happened was Mike's professor, a guy named John Glavin, he was uh, studying screenplay writing. And Mike said, I, I'm thinking of wanting to do a play, like a solo play, like I've been doing stand-up. And he was still a relatively young comic, although he had been doing it, I think, maybe close to 10 years. But he had a lot of road experience already. And, and he was told by John Glavin to see every one person's show that he could and pick the one he responded to the most and find that creative team and work with them. And so he did that. And as 
luck would have it, the the piece that he responded to most was this play, The Tricky Part by Mark Moran, and that I had directed. And so my experience of this was I just showed up at work one day and I was walking into my office and in the hall outside my office was this young dude with a backpack. And I said, hi, he goes, hi. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, my name is Mike Birbiglia. I'm a comedian. Uh, I've been on Letterman. <laughs> <laughs> you got to chop your credits fast. Yeah. And I was like, oh, God, cool. And then, you know, he explained to me that he had was working on this thing. And he said, I, I just was wondering if you'd like to direct it. There was something about him that was both assertive, but not off-putting. He, he, he's very good at that. And, and uh, I said, well, you know, I, let's, why don't we get to know each other and uh, let me get to know your work. And and so if you're ever doing anything, let me know and I'll, I'll check it out. And okay, great, great. And then the next day he emailed me the text of what he was working on, which was the beginning of uh, what became Sleepwalk with me, which was, I know later on a narrative fiction movie, but the piece we were really working on was a one person nonfiction hybrid of stand up and storytelling. Had it been on This American Life yet or not yet? Not not yet. Okay. And then what happened was he sent me text and I actually couldn't make much sense of the text. I mean, I could I could follow it logically, but I, I didn't know his voice. I didn't know what, you know, if there were jokes even in it. Although <laughs> right. I, well, he does have a very unique storytelling style. He really does. And, and so I, I thought, well, you know, I, I'm glad to read this. I, I don't know what to make of it. But then like the next day or a couple of days later, he sent me a CD of, it was his first CD, which is now out of print. I think it was called Dog Ears. And when I listened to that CD, I immediately went, I want to work with this guy because it was so in line with everything else I had been exploring as a performing artist. It just felt like a guy talking. And I was drawn to that. I mean, I, I was... I came from the era where probably like you, the people I looked up to or Richard Pryor was a huge comedic influence for me. I just thought, and, and I was same thing. I just like, that guy's just talking. We started to kind of slowly begin to play together and work together. And then here we are 20 years later. Yeah. And you did the performance pieces, which were live theatrical pieces. Subsequently, you were able to do the film versions and or the Broadway version. It's really an interesting lifetime collaboration yeah. where you really support each other's bigger dream to be doing the kind of work in this industry that you're doing. And in many ways you are protected by that being a collaboration. Oh yeah, very much so. I mean, the way Mike and I often describe it is a conversation started in 2003 and here it's 20 years later and it's, we're still having the conversation. I speak to Mike a lot. I mean, it's a, you know, almost daily. It's a, hey, what's up? You know, and same, you know, he's checking with me, I'm checking with him. And it's just this path and there's really never been any kind of official thing. It's all just been understood that that's what we're doing, you know, it's been great. <laughs> well, I like that. And I guess you've done that with other folks and in, not into the, the length of time that you've had a relationship, but but at the Barrow Group, you have a solo show development program oh, yeah. called Transformative Journeys, where you're able to share what you've done with Martin and what you've done with Mike, in a way, empowering and giving permission for people to tell their story. Yeah. You're trying to do that same subtractive thing, which is to get to the core of their story and who they are as a storyteller. Well, sort of i mean it really depends on the piece we were when you're talking about you know directing strategies of of sort of sliding in and letting the handshake with the audience and everything i think a lot of times that's dictated by the piece of art itself and so there are times when people do things that are deliberately other than real and and mm -hmm. very theatrical i think that i'm interested in and so as a result this is the kind of stuff i tend to share with folks is I'm just interested in stories and the potential effects of stories. I've been greatly moved and impacted by stories that people have told, whether they told it in a spoken word form or in a play form or in a film form. It's just a huge part of my life and I, I love it so. And so I, I think that in the in terms of the workshops that we offer we tend to zero in on the story part of things mm. you know just get really clear on making sure that something happens this is the way i think of it that some some single thing <laughs> is going to happen in the story 
and that everything else is in service of that. Things like making sure that something, when you start to tell the story, that something quite soon happens that, that will hook people in, and then making sure that things are not redundant. And, and those are some of the fundamentals. I, I have to say, I'm kind of blown away by how many wonderful stories and storytellers there are out there. Mutual friend of ours, natural segue into talking about music, but I was teaching a solo show workshop online during the pandemic. I mean, I realize we're still kind of in it. I guess it's the end yeah. endemic now. But I was teaching a solo workshop and one of the students for that workshop was this woman, Catherine Porter. And in the course of the workshop, she was working on a piece that had some music and she is part of the development, sang something from her piece. Uh, her voice completely blew my mind. I, 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 and I, I, when the session was over, I contacted her, I said, I just, not for nothing, but man, can you sing? And somehow that led to like, oh yeah, thank you so much. You know, do you do music? And I do. And, and she said, do you have any albums? And I went, no, I don't really. I have, I have recordings of things that were used for other purposes. And she said, can you send me some? I said, yeah, sure. And so I did. And she was like, oh, that's great. And she started sending me stuff. And, and then at some point she said, you want to do something together? And I was like, oh my gosh. And now, you know, we're partnering up in this, what looks to be an album coming out and everything. And, and, I somehow got over there from the notion that there are so many talented people. I mean, I know the name of your show is, uh, you know, has captivity in it. And creativity for me was inspired by captivity in, in this case. I mean, it was the pandemic that led yeah. to all this happen. I was stuck. Full disclosure to everyone. You have appeared on this show before, as has Catherine, <laughs> because you accepted a kind of a kooky invitation I had in the Christmas cluster, which was a yeah. different kind of episode. I didn't want to have a guest on over Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and not get them any listeners. So I put a little bit of a, a, a review show together, I guess. I don't know if that's the right yeah. term. But but I had a dead file of a, of a song that I wrote for a play that I didn't use. And I didn't know what to do with it. And to be honest, I don't play music and I don't sing. So I threw it to Catherine, I think, or you, Catherine. you were, you guys were working on something at the time. Yeah. And I go, do whatever you want with this, have fun with this. And it was really, really fun for me. And it was quite different. You guys changed lyrics. You created a new underlying music bed, but I love collaboration for the, for the idea that surprises come from collaboration. Oh yeah. That babies don't look like one parent or the other, or, you know, in this case, not like any of us. So yeah. What was really fun for me was to let it go and let the two of you play in the sandbox and return it. This is what it feels like to play with your friends. So I'm glad that you and Catherine found each other in this. I was just going to point out that it's a complete coincidence. Catherine knows you. I was describing, you, you and I were, were hanging out at a social thing, and I was describing the social thing, and she said, that sounds like the thing that my friend was at. I said, who's your friend? He said, Pat Hazel. <laughs> You're kidding me. <laughs> so right. Total coincidence. Hey, I think this is a good time for us to pause and share a taste of a collaboration between Seth Barish and Catherine Porter. So here's a work in progress called This Is The Time with Seth on piano and vocals by Catherine Porter. Enjoy. Near you, 
Give me a smile and you're on your way. What will become of this golden moment? What will you come to at the end of the day? That this is the time. This is the time. This is the time right now. This is the time. The way I met her was at an arts conference where I was showcasing a piece of my show, The Wonder Bread Years, just a like a little 15-minute showcase. Yeah. And it was in front of all of the presenters of performing arts centers who book shows. Yeah. And you it's a very coveted spot. But in order to do this at that luncheon, one act got to do it. Mm-hmm. You had to sponsor the luncheon. You had to pay like $15,000 to feed everybody at the conference. And and it was like a big investment. <laughs> but, you know, of course, you're looking at picking up all kinds of work from it. You're looking at your show being booked around the country. So after many years and some success, I was like, I'm going to sponsor that luncheon and do this thing. <laughs> so I'm the little engine that could in setting this up teching my thing, being sure everything's taken care of. And then I'm just waiting for it to happen and we have to seat the luncheon. So everybody comes in and I have a table of which I have no friends because I'm <laughs> I'm busy selling my own show. And there people are coming in and there's no seats left, there's no seats left. So there's like two seats left at my table. Yeah. And she comes in way right at the very end. And I see her looking for a seat and I wave her over and I seat her at this table, but I don't sit down. I then walk backstage and then I go on stage and do the 17 minutes. And then when I come back, I come back to have lunch with the people at the table. But when I sat her, she thought I was the maitre d' of the luncheon. And so afterwards, the fact that I came and sat there, she's like, wait, I'm what's happening here. I'm really confused. Anyway, that made us friends rather quickly. I love those moments, and I would say it happens frequently when you start to get into what I would call your creative community. So when people join the Barrow Group and they're taking classes or they're in a play, you begin to give yourself permission for that kind of making friends in a group. Yeah. But I find that it's just as interesting in life if you are open-minded and you want to hear somebody's story or you reach out to people. I mean, this podcast mm-hmm. is a product of me wanting to have play dates with creative people. Yeah. I want to learn from them. I want to understand it. And I also want to share it because as a kid, I didn't have that many places where people knew magic or knew juggling or knew, I had to go seek out like a convention to find that. And I think now the world's gotten so much smaller. People do have access to things or information. Anything you ever needed if you had a carburetor you had to fix, you can just Google it and it'll tell you where the part is, yeah. how to put it in. I feel like people should have the same chance to be inspired by people as they do by the how-tos on the internet. Yeah, We had to go to the library and check out a book on the interest and then you had to read it. And I there was a magic book at my school for some reason. Was it and D- I checked, Dunninger's Encyclopedia? Was it that one? No, no. That's a good one, though. Dunninger's Encyclopedia of Magic was the book you couldn't do anything from because <laughs> right. it, they had these really elaborate, okay, the horse has a hollow leg and you, <laughs> under right. the thing, somebody's pumping water that makes comes out in whatever color. And you're like, well, I'm 10. I can't do that. <laughs> And every page had some fascinating offstage assistant. I remember drawings of a guy in a hollowed out tree that would could crawl under and come out of a coffin. I'm like, no, well, there's no field. There's no tree. There's no, this one was some kind of history of magic. I had checked it out five or six times in a row. Yeah. I was the only one on the, on the checkout card and the, and I decided to steal it at that point. I was like, it's better at my house, and if somebody wants to check it out, I'll have it there. So, And I had to steal it with the card in it because there would have been evidence of who took it if I had checked it out and taken it. So I had to return it and then subsequently steal it at a different time oh while the God. library card was still in it. I hear the police knocking. It, you're missing a book? Is that? Oh, that's yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I have stolen two books in my lifetime. and uh, What was the other and that one? one I, 
Well, the other one was how to be a professional MC. I was way too young to ever be one or want to be one. <laughs> and what was interesting was the, I would say 25 years after I was out of that high school, the principal of that high school called and asked me if I would write something for the graduates of that year because I had made some success and they felt like I was somebody to point to. And they just wanted to know what going to the school meant to me. <laughs> Yeah. Of which I couldn't really think of that many things. <laughs> but I did ask him, I said, if you will give me complete reprieve on stealing this book, the <laughs> MC book, I will write the thing and I will either return the book or you can let me keep the book as pay. So subsequently, I did write this little piece for him, uh -huh. of which I didn't really bag on the school. I just said, you know, focus on your interest. For example, I stole this library book. <laughs> And it is why I am a professional MC and host and things today. So I do have to credit Burke High School for for that. And anyway, I was on the lamb though. I felt I had a great deal of Catholic guilt for a long time over having stolen a book. But but honestly, at the time, I didn't even know what intrigued me about being an MC. Yeah, that's interesting. What do you think that was? I think I uh, adored Johnny Carson. Yeah. And he was a presenter of material. And I don't know that I thought of him as MC, but I was like, oh, wait, this is amazing. This guy has a toolkit as a comedian, as an uh, interviewer, as a sketch player, as a writer, as everything that Johnny did, he did really well yeah. and was in some ways invisible, as you say. Yeah. Like he just sort of used this Midwestern charm and he used a naivete that I think was a powerful tool where he would act like he didn't know much about things. And he amplified and lifted up the performers. Yeah. Even if they were a common person, I was on one time with a woman that dressed up chickens and he made her the star of the show. Something that crossed my mind earlier, I guess I want to double back on is when you were talking about how attracted you are to stories and when yeah. you were working with the solo show folks, mm -hmm. I want to know how powerful having a space is. Well, it's amazingly helpful, that's for sure. I mean, without it, you have to find space every time you want to do anything, and that can be really, really tricky. So having a space is makes development of things much easier. That makes me think of, in, in the case of somebody like Mike Birbiglia, he has a high enough profile as uh, as a comedian that he can kind of go around the country and do stand-up, but... He's also developing a show, really a story, but he's savvy enough and funny enough so that the audience doesn't go like, wait a minute, what's going on here? You know, it's just, it's, right. really, it's really funny. But stuff. he didn't, he didn't always have that. I mean, no. he always had the clubs, but he didn't always have the cachet of what he's, what he's able to do now to develop. Absolutely. And in a certain sense, he didn't always have the clubs because, you know, it's, as you know, road work is consuming and back then anyway, paid nothing. And I mean that rather literally. It would cost him money to go do his time on the road and stuff, but he was just, he looked at it as like training, really. There are so many times, and this still happens, where like something is development and for some reason there's not a space available, wherever that space might be. And I've seen him do things for like four people in his living room, the idea is that development is development and talking is talking and trying out stuff and, and is trying out stuff and communicating is communicating. And some of the most informative, actually uh, developmental sessions have been things with two or three people that have just really helped. It, it's funny, this for some reason that makes me think of, Mike told me a story about Chris Rock that he would sometimes go into the club to try out material where he would deliberately strip away any sort of what somebody might call the song or something, you know, like the the way in which he says something that helps excite the audience and where he would just deliberately strip that away and just talk so he could test the content of what he was saying and stuff. Separate then, he, he has a an amazing toolkit of the how, how he does it. Yeah. He wanted to know that the raw content, yeah. the message itself was better than his ability as a salesman to yeah. make it. Exactly. And so if Mike's doing something where he's talking to four people or three people, he's not going to get, you know, a big communal laugh. It's just not the right. nature of the thing. But he still is communicating and saying things, and he, he learns a lot from it. We didn't even tap into your being a latte artist. 
<laughs> Which, no, I, I was so intrigued at our last sort of retreat that we had together that you, why, why are you laughing? It's <laughs> because I'm such a bad latte artist. Well, you're aspiring. Let's say I'm you're aspiring, aspiring latte aspiring, artist. Yeah. And for those who don't know, it's when the milk or foam is being poured in some design on a coffee. Yeah. And I was watching you practice this at one morning and you can laugh, but, but it's really weird what that did for me watching you do it like i, what, I felt which like is what what did it do the sun was up you were, you were in the kitchen yeah and you were offering to make everybody coffee mainly because you wanted to do the latte art on the top yeah. you were working on something i don't think it was uh there are some basics right the yeah. flower and some of that you had already done and i'm fascinated by how creative people are always trying to create something yeah and how the artist in you, as the composer in you, as the actor in you, wanted to get better at this. Yeah. So much so that it was coffees for everyone. And, you know, even people didn't want coffee. It's like, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to make another coffee. Here. But there was such a focus of how you held the milk. And it was like watching a glass blower or any number of artisans. <laughs> and you have to be bad at it to start. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. I mean... You have to accept that there's a certain amount of time to develop a skill of any kind. But you, I just, I loved your passion for that particular morning of, I am going to master this one thing. Like, I'm going to figure out how to make this heart shape or this flower. And so now, every time I see a really elaborate foam art, I think of you working on that particular thing. <laughs> Absolutely. You're touching on two things that are very close to my heart right now. One is that I think creatives create. I think it's there it's a this strong desire that we all have. I mean, look at you. You're you're this incredible comedian, you're an incredible magician. You're producing stuff and putting together shows, you're writing your own plays, you're doing all of these things. And somehow, it, I'm guessing that it's not that the outside world is going, Pat, we need you to do this. We need you. It's it, <laughs> that it's more like, let's do this. And then you start to collaborate with people and things develop. And I find this again and again and again with folks that are successful in the sense that they're out there doing it, is that there's some kind of self-generated thing of, I just need to create. If there's nothing going on in my life, I don't just sit around and wait and go, oh, no. It's like, well, I better get busy doing something. Even if it doesn't pay, latte art does the opposite of paying. <laughs> but it, but it's, it is part of that desire to create. I, I, I love doing it and I love watching others do it. I'm inspired by others doing it. You inspire me because you know every time I see you, if I say, hey, what's going on? It's like, well, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I'm doing this. And right. that's really inspiring to me. Well, I appreciate it. It's funny. I, I do. I am moved by makers, people who make anything and birth things into the world. And the more original, the better. I'm fascinated by things where people go, I, I just, when they have a job that you go, how is that even a job? I had a guy named Gary Staub on and Gary is a sculptor that makes full-size dinosaurs to scale <laughs> for science and history museums, yeah. for the Smithsonian, for all these places. And I'm like, how did you get this job? Yeah. He goes, well, I kind of envisioned it. And then when I went to college, I made a curriculum that was some art, some anatomy, some whatever. Like he literally made his own wow. thing that he could graduate with the expertise. There wasn't, I don't know if there were guys doing this specific thing or not, yeah. but it includes sewing hair onto the skin and putting yeah. every scale in place on a fish. And you can't even imagine accumulating the skill set it would be to have the Smithsonian buy a 52-foot shark from you that they're hanging over their lobby. That's an amazing story to me. But there are so many people that do that that you go, I didn't know that you could yeah. do that for a living. Yeah. I love those people. Absolutely. A lot of times when you're working on something, you might feel like there's no connection between this and the rest of my life. And, oh, is that a problem? Is this? But the interesting thing is that I'll bet anything, at some point, something, some job project or whatever is going to come along where it's like, you know what would help here? Latte art. Right. And... and, and <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I can tell you it'll happen in acting before you know <laughs> it. Right. You'll be the world's oldest barista or something. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, but right. I've heard you play the piano in the other room. I've watched you do latte or whatever. And I do see how one thing informs another. Yeah. How you're living a creative life. You're also very, very generous as a director, a teacher, 
and a mentor for folks mm -hmm. because I think you know that the creative pie is big enough for everybody mm -hmm. and you want them to tell a better story and bake a better pie because it does raise the water level for everyone when theater is better, when storytelling is better. I thank you for sharing any inspiration. I want to be sure that I mention your book because there is a ton of information for folks in here and not just actors. The book is called An Actor's Companion, and Seth wrote that. I'm sure it's online probably at the barrowgroup.org. Is that the website? Yeah, you can get to it through barrowgroup.org, which is our company's website. It's all the books on sale on Amazon. Yeah, An Actor's Companion, Tools for the Working Actor is the full title. Yeah. Okay, and I just want to tap into backed pages really quickly. It's just loaded with stuff, and it's yeah. very accessible and very good reminders for folks about the simplicity of what you're doing, you know, how acting can be easy. Like it doesn't have to be this big muscular lift. Right. It doesn't have to be crazy. And you have had so many folks come through that have benefited from that, but it was, it's a book I would recommend. Thank you. An actor's companion tools for the working actor yeah. by Seth Barish. And thank you so much again for spending the time. I wish we would have had some latte with us to sort of cap this whole thing off but my pleasure and, and as always and pat it's always great hanging with you and talking with you all right thanks pal cheers all right take it easy thanks for joining us today take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration our show is produced by sweetwood creative with sound editing lovingly provided by delilah lovejoy our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's, or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right, it's dot fun, because dot com is just two dot common, and dot fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. Your call to creativity. La 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 la. La 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 la. La 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 la.